I started painting these like pixelated characters that I called them like block people. They're essentially these post-human sort of android-like assemblages of human body parts or graphics kind of glitching. And they were in conversation with um, the music that I was writing at the time, a pop album called uh, 12 Hours. And I was staring at a screen all day composing this music, which is, it looks like that. It's just, if you've ever seen MIDI synthesizers on a screen, when you're um, editing it, you just see these blocks stacked on top of each other of different you know, lengths and combinations. So it, it made a lot of sense to me that sometimes they look like figures on, on the program you're working with. You start seeing things in your, in your own music visually. And so that was kind of where I started seeing like staircases and these sort of stick figure like people in the music itself. And that was really exciting. And, and so I was trying to find a way to, to convey that. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 301st episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Andy Demzik. He's currently an MFA candidate at the University of Cincinnati. We're here to talk about his thesis exhibition that opens up with a number of other graduate artists at the Contemporary Art Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's February 23rd from 5 to 8 p.m., and that runs through March 16th. So if you're in the Cincinnati area, be sure to check that out. We'll have links, of course. As you just heard, Andy is a multimedia artist who incorporates a lot of different practices, background in music and writing, and we talk a lot about how that developed into his love of painting and how he combines all of these things. We go on to talk a little bit about his thesis exhibition of recent work, so please stay tuned for that interview. You can check out his work at andydemzik.com, and of course, be sure to follow him on Instagram at andydemzik. Just a reminder, if you haven't been to the website, cedarbreak.com, we got a big archive of all of our episodes there by year. You can look at images. You can listen right there. You can find links to their websites. And, of course, if you like the podcast, please consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great studio companion and great listening. And, of course, we're in social media, so be sure to like our Facebook page to stay up to date. You can find us on Twitter, X, at Studio Break. But the best way to say hello is on Instagram, at Studio underscore Break. With those brief announcements out of the way, let's get right into this interview with Andy Demzik. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Andy Demchuk. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Yeah, excellent to have you on. Uh, you were one of the artists that applied for our student competition, uh, juried by Mia Reesberg, and you know she picked your work. And you know we're here to talk all about it. You've got a exhibition coming up for your MFA thesis at the University of Cincinnati. Again, that's going to be February twenty third to March sixteenth. Opens on February twenty third, so we'll be sure to talk all about that. And it'll be interesting to break all that down. Well, I dabble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and again, maybe we'll just start there. You know, where where are you from? And and yeah, let's just open it up from there. So part of why I'm so excited to be on this podcast is my family moved to Chicago originally from Ukraine, Germany, and Poland. They moved here after the war uh, in the 50s. So I didn't grow up in Chicago, but I spent every summer going there to 
hang out with my grandma and uncles. So I have a deep connection to, to that city. So I'm originally from Mission Viejo, California, and um, grew up in like a suburban sprawl, middle class with, uh, you know, uh, access to a residential lake, which is funny because it sounds really bougie. But back in the day, those houses were only worth like 250K and now they're million plus. So it's uh, it's changed a lot since I was a kid. <laughs> so that sort of, um, I don't know, riding your bike down the street at night, you know, that type of thing was, we were just kind of let loose pretty early on. Just because your background seems so diverse as a maker, I could imagine, who knows, you were maybe out late. <laughs> working on music or I don't know, doing graffiti. Well, it, I think it's, it started with, yeah, the skateboard groups, you know, just like hanging out at skate parks, going up, like skating under bridges and seeing people playing acoustic guitar late at night under bridges was like the first kind of introduction into music. Interesting. I had a pretty life-changing trip to Chicago where my uncle, his best friend, George, he busted out the guitar and had like uh, a series of effects pedals on the floor and was just doing all these crazy harmonies and, you know, playing with the wah pedal. And, you know, he just started creating all these layered loops. And I was probably 13 at the time. And I was just blown away by just what he was capable of doing with one instrument. And I immediately went home and was like, dad, I need to get a guitar. And uh, we ended up getting this knockoff of a knockoff of a squire strat as a, a pig nose was the brand i don't know if they make them anymore but mm -hmm. it's kind of a weird thing they're very heavy and um, they have a, a the knob the volume knob is in the shape of a pig's nose which i i don't know why they i don't know they maybe they thought that was funny but <laughs> right <laughs> that, that was my first guitar <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and i'm assuming then your parents were pretty um, encouraging of your kind of creative interests, you know, growing up as a skateboarder and tinkerer of music and art? Always um, encouraged to draw. I I had like um, these collections of encyclopedias that I'd made from just like printer paper and, and Crayola markers. I would make um, just like catalogs of imaginary bugs. And my mom would, you know, be really stoked when when I had a, you know, good series, she would like put them, you know, the typical like on the fridge thing. And so, yeah, it was always a very like heartwarming house. And we, we got to go to a lot of concerts. That, that lake is called Lake Mission Viejo. And they put on these free concerts where I saw like Weird Al and Donovan and Neil Young. And, you know, as a kid, just you, you get to hang out with your friends and sit there like on the sand and get to see Weird Al it was Pretty awesome. This is kind of a tangent, but one of my first concert experience was actually the Spice Girls, and this mm -hmm. must have been like '95. Um, but I actually got a bottle thrown at my head from the. We, we were sitting in the lawn, and uh, this guy, I don't know, was just drunk on the lawn and tossed a bottle, and it like knocked me out. And um, so that was my his pretty punk rock um, <laughs> Spice Girls concert. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, so I have a feeling that then you kind of knew exactly what you wanted to do at a young age, maybe as opposed to being an aimless wanderer. Or am I wrong on that one? The music thing, um, I think it was partly just being in a group of friends that, especially once like middle school and high school hit, we just, it was what you did when you hung out was you grabbed a guitar, our friend would get on the drum set and we would just jam and learn like Ramones songs or 
I don't know, we played like Zeppelin and Beatles songs and all the kind of, you know, classic rock, you know, because we would have like the the typical um, dad coming in being like, oh, you guys know this tune? And, you know, just kind of, it was, yeah, basically dad rock. But mm -hmm. um, looking back, I mean, we were pretty, pretty uh, talented for being like 14 years old and like shredding Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I don't know, looking back, yeah, it's a very fond um, and like, pretty uh prolific music because we were already gigging by 15 in bars and stuff so we weren't even allowed to to stay after we played they would kick us out for not being 21 mm -hmm. so we were like gigging while in high school which was it was kind of cool but a lot of them were pay to play in orange county so you had to kind of hustle at the high school and promote your shows telling you know come to this bar and you know you'd have to get like the all the ages night or whatever and try to really promote your shows and it could be stressful as a you know as a high schooler trying to not owe a bar like three hundred dollars <laughs> yeah and and to not fail out of school i would assume because it's probably a lot of fun <laughs> yeah were, were you like studying studying art too there and kind of taking you know painting classes drawing classes or anything like that or is that something that kind of came later yeah that's one of the wild things about my like just involvement in the arts now is just because I never took an art class. I, I think I, I was just always in the music appreciation, music production, and then the jazz band. And that was sort of like the crew. Like we, we sort of stuck around the band room and all my art influences like came from probably the, the show flyers and the people um, designing like our, our merch and, you know, sort of the DIY aesthetic and the punk aesthetic, I really was drawn to that. I, I did notice one day I was looking at some of my drawings and I realized like I had watched this show called It's Cartoon Time, which was back in the 90s. This guy, this Elvis impersonator taught kids how to draw on his, his little like paperboard and would, you know, talk and give this like great Elvis impersonation as he was drawing. And um, I was like, hey, that kind of looks like those, like the way that guy would draw. And so that kind of subconsciously, once I started trying to think back to like when I was really influenced, <laughs> I think that guy, he did a lot on number. So <laughs> sure. Well, so again, I, I gather your, your journey towards art's going to be maybe a bit different, like you alluded to, and, you know, kind of going through your, your credentials. I know writing is also something that, you know, is a, a big part of your background. Was that something that was, you know, a part of it kind of early on or did, that also kind of come, you know, through studying music and once I got into music, I kind of took an easy, the easy road in high school and my classes were kind of, I don't know, not very, I guess you would say like high level. They were like, you know, just sort of the basics. My favorite class was English and we, we always had like these really hilarious book reports that we would give me and my, um, my drummer, Tony Dean shout out. He's like, still collaborating he's um, the guy who drummed on my my album this year but anyways we would like make these elaborate musicals and write out like these sort of theatrical performances in the middle of english class when no one was really expecting that you know it was just kind of mm -hmm. you know describe these characters and so we you know we took to, we took to really embodying like novels and stuff early on but um no that didn't come till later in France, actually, because I was trying to find a way to make a living and um, realize that like teaching English abroad is is a good gig. 
So I, I uh, applied for like a, a online English degree and happened to do a lot of great creative writing projects. Well, and so, you know, to kind of see if I can bring some of this stuff together, you know, because I know that you studied, I think, like guitar performance or something like that. So how did, how did that come about? You, I'm assuming, like got familiar with like a, a place to study music. What was that experience like to kind of go from being, uh, you know, playing under bridges and in bars uh, when you're 15 <laughs> to, to yeah. studying in that environment? Because I'd imagine there's a little bit more rigor. Is that something that you kind of took to? Because I'm sure like you know, it ups the ante in terms of like, aside from the gen ed classes, but all like the composition stuff and theory and all that other stuff, I'm sure it builds on a lot more than what you studied previously. Oh yeah. It was, it was terrifying. Um, so the musicians <laughs> Institute is a, it's like a trade school for, I guess, musicians who want to get into playing in studios or touring. And so I, I remember auditioning for that and they, they didn't tell us, but you had to do a sight reading Thing. And I was still like pretty not great on like just playing notes on command, but I somehow got in and um, it was, yeah, it was pretty rigorous. There were no other classes. There was no gen ed. It was all songwriting, guitar technique, music theory, ear training. Um, I had like private vocal lessons from this lady. She was very eccentric Hollywood, like a singer from Tower of Power. Her name was Mama O. And mm -hmm. she taught me how to like really belt and like, you know, learn how to do vocal trills and vibrato. And and I forgot all of that stuff. Once you, you kind of don't use it, you lose it. Something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I have like a very indie, I don't know if you know Dr. Dog, but the Scott McMicken vibe, it's like kind of like a toned down Neil Young mm -hmm. kind of quirky indie singer. Uh, that's mm -hmm. the only thing I can do now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. I don't know. So, so kind of thinking about that experience, I'm assuming that you kind of had to like, you know, have some sort of performance in terms of graduating. Did you then, is that when you kind of applied to get this ability to kind of teach English and then travel to France to do that? Or did that also come later? This is kind of the, the part that um, I deviated from the path quite a bit. So I got out of Hollywood and again, I was 17 at the time. So I did not, really get to uh, appreciate Hollywood for what it is. Like I couldn't do a whole lot down there. So I was touring with my band Airborne Age and we would, you know, book our own little West Coast tours and we're doing quite well, like, you know, getting our name out there and stuff. And then I, I watched a French film and was like, hey, that'd be kind of cool to, to learn another language. Um, how do I do that? And so I started looking up like, how to teach abroad or how to you know volunteer abroad and um originally it was going to be like uh only a month but i ended up signing on for a, an eight month project and it was in the middle of the alps kind of like two hours north of marseille in the south the projects the description was just like art and music festivals organizing music workshops gardening um hanging out with people from all over the world. And so I was like, that sounds great. So I went there with like zero French knowledge and um, ended up, you know, loving it and kind of created a life out there. And I went back um, after that eight months, another one and kind of, you know, by the time when I came back, my band was kind of, they all went off to college and were doing other things. So I was kind of like, well, there's, you know, what else am I going to do? 
so yeah, I got really involved in France and um, ended up getting married over there and stayed for several years. And during that time, yeah, I was just kind of trying to get my life together and teach English and went to school online and was like doing my homework in a random apartment in Normandy, France, uh, in Caen and, and Rouen. And it was pretty great, like seeing the cathedral that Monet painted, he would rent out a studio like in front of that cathedral and just paint all day. And so I got to just sit there every day and kind of, yeah, just started getting really interested in architecture and the lighting of Normandy. I could see why Impressionism started there, you know. Mm -hmm. That whole journey led me to uh, divorce and eventually coming back to California. I was living in uh, Lompoc, which is like three hours north of Los Angeles. It's a very small town. You don't hear about it very often uh, when you think about California, but it's a really cool little spot north of Santa Barbara. But yeah, there um, I was able to discover my love of painting. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, again, it's you're not the only person that gets inspired. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, to go to a place that has history when you, you know, maybe are in a place that is like the United States. I don't know. I just feel like it's such a different kind of thing. Certainly like a, a place like Normandy that has so much history, you know. You see, you see a, a cratered, cratered bunkers and and all these oh, kind yeah. of like divots in the ground, and you're walking through them, and you're like, wow, this is like a real thing. But especially to kind of see like the light, or you know, the way that like the evening just kind of keeps going on, and the it's just light out forever. You kind of totally get that idea, and you kind of get that sensibility. So it's interesting to hear how that would, you know, kind of spark this. Yeah, this interest to kind of get back, get into painting in a different way, maybe. So, so tell us a little about that, and give us an idea too of time. Like, when when is this when you're starting to kind of be like, ah, oh, painting? You know, this is this is really cool. Aside from, you know, music and 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 writing. Yeah. So, brief structure would be graduated high school in 2008, then music school finished that in like 2010, then moved to France in 2011, and then. Th left for California after that whole saga in 2017, I believe. So it was a, yeah, like a big seven year uh, era where I, I was gigging in Paris, actually. I did some shows in these little pubs and playing music that whole time. So I wasn't just like, you know, in married life, like totally given up on creative endeavors. I was, was definitely giving it a shot and, playing in some summer music festivals and stuff out there. It was really exciting. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Festival d'Avignon in, in Avignon, uh, France. It's like one of the biggest theater festivals. It really um, opened my eyes to see so many different types of performance art. You walk down the street in that small city and, you know, they have like all the coffee shops open and there's, um, during the whole festival, there's people doing one man shows, like playing piano, you know, doing like live painting or, you know, doing like um, fanfare or marching bands or outside. Like it's just a kind of an overstimulating experience. But having seen sort of the just the creative um, drive and motivation in France of, you know, young people really giving it a go. And, and I think France, you know, at the time, at least, they had a pretty good avenue for people who wanted to get into the creative arts. Like, they had stipends and things of that nature for people who 
had a certain number of shows per year. You just had to justify like you're playing 40 shows a year or some number. And then they would get like a minimum wage sent to them on top of what they made. So a lot of my friends were living off those checks. And I was like, man, that would be, that would be awesome. But yeah, anyway, so I was kind of drawing from all that once I came back to California and was like thinking, how can I, how can I keep being involved with either music or, you know, just making more friends in the creative industry. And I made a paint by number because my mom was like, oh, you should try painting. And, you know, it's really relaxing. And I was like, okay, sure. Um, but I, I was immediately bored by the, you know, just following the paint to the number and it was very repetitive. And so I just started kind of going it at random sort of automatic color choosing and intuitively spacing everything out. And I gave it to um, somebody I was dating at the time, um, Ashley Ekstrom, who's like, who turned out to be a great artist from, she studied in uh, Knoxville, at U University of Tennessee. But yeah, she was like, hey, this is actually pretty good. You should do more of these. So I started doing this whole series of paint by numbers and kind of jokingly applied to uh, grad school with it to see like, I don't know, what, what would a art professor think about paint by numbers? It's kind of a a trolley vibe to it like you know it's got that like postmodern wink where you're just kind of like haha like this is a this is all kind of ridiculous you know like we all have to come up with these concepts and it became sort of a something that got me uh, into grad school so the guy at michael's the cashier was was did not believe that i was gonna pull that off but <laughs> i proved him wrong <laughs> there you go there you go and um remind us the website Real quick, because I think these are all portfolio there, right? You can you can find all these from 2020. Yeah, it's just a uh, andydemchuk.com. That's just my name. They're in the 2020 era. Um, yeah, that's pretty much my first intro to painting series. So, well, it's it's interesting because obviously, like the the color that you use, obviously totally devoid from you know that. I'm sure paint by numbers or wherever it started from, you know, it looks like they kind of like start dissolving, you know, in terms of the way that you're kind of painting them. So, you know, to, to say they're paint by numbers, <laughs> it, there's obviously a lot of liberties taken, which make them so interesting. But I guess, you know, even though I know we'll talk about it in the current work too, I don't know, where do you think of that in terms of that color coming from, or is it just like, because you, you know, I'm assuming haven't been in some sort of format where you're painting, uh, you know, peaches and plums and, you know, on, with flowers or something like that uh, and more like a traditional setting. I'm assuming that like, again, you're just kind of coming up with these vivid color palettes from somewhere, but maybe talk about that a little bit. One of the great things of living in Los Angeles is um, the museums there. So I was able to go to um, the Getty quite a bit. I was just kind of in the gallery and not really that impressed with you know the room i was in and then all of a sudden i saw a vuillard painting edward vuillard's um post-impressionist if you know for those of you who haven't checked him out he has a very um pastel palette and he uses distemper with which the water-based medium with glue so it's very chalky and yeah just like kind of splotches of color it looks very like a deconstructed image when you like kind of your eyes kind of bug out on it. But yeah, his color palette just, I never really liked the color pink or like pale green until I saw Vuillard's work and was like, oh my God, this is, this is brilliant, you know? So I pretty much took it from 
from him and then maybe uh Lichtenstein like and and Warhol's like you know the the pop art 60s look mm -hmm. so it's kind of a combination of both of those Well, yeah, I mean, again, it's it's interesting to think about that whole process, that story, especially relative to Michael's. Um, like, I'm assuming, you know, you just have like a, you know, one bedroom apartment or something like that. You're kind of trying to to work through some of these and, you know, thinking like, I guess I'm going to apply to graduate school. And I don't know, did you apply to a bunch of places or was it just like a handful or? It's kind of a funny story too, how that happened. It, so after Los Angeles, um, we were applying while we were in Los Angeles, me and Ashley were together at that time. And we both applied pretty much all over the country and we didn't get in. And then, and so we actually moved to Chicago and cause I was like, I want to go back to my roots and be with my, you know, my family. And I got a job at H and M in, uh, the, the headquarters there on West Jackson and I was in this like 18th floor, you know, cubicle speaking in French to French Canadians about their H&M clothes and you know, <laughs> their defected jackets and whatnot. And then my other calls would be like people from New Jersey. So it was like the two most like contrasted, like, but anyway, so, um, well, Ashley was working, this is, I guess, notable. She was working at the MCA during Virgil Abloh's big solo show there um back in 20 was that 2018 so she was working there and we kind of had our you know our stuff figured out like we were like okay this is this is you know a good rhythm and then she woke up one day and got a call from ut knoxville and we were like oh my god it was july and the program started in august and they someone dropped out and they were like hey like we have a fully funded position here come you know come to knoxville and we were like well we can't turn that down so we moved to knoxville like the next week we just like got all our stuff and moved there and found a place on craigslist i i, I don't know that year was kind of a wash like i was working in like the knoxville news factory like on like the newspaper conveyor belts and i was just kind of doing temp work and then i got in in 2020 when I applied and COVID hit like right after I got assigned a, a graduate assistantship spot. So they had to close down the museum where I would, would have been working probably. So the funding went out and I was like, well, shoot, I got into a English program masters in Johnson city, Tennessee, and ended up moving there to do that. Cause that was a full ride. And I was like, cool. Yeah. Like I want to get better at writing during it was a good move ultimately because like during covid i had something to do and to focus on i read like 150 books a year they have these really long reading lists when you do a master's in english so you gotta you gotta study up on like english renaissance and i think i tested in uh the 20th century modernism and so you have to like be able to talk about like a list of 50 books per era which was pretty daunting once yeah once that whole english phase finished i i then got into uh, university of cincinnati so that that's where i kind of i didn't give up on the mfa dream because it just seemed like a really cool thing to do you know to get paid to go to school and learn about art and have a studio i really wanted a studio space to work which i didn't realize at the time but it's not really when you're a musician and you think studio space it's a very different thing to a, 
a painter who has a studio space because you can't really go to your MFA studio and make a bunch of music. Um, well, I, I've tried, <laughs> but I've I've annoyed many people doing that. So. Sure, sure. And remind me too. So specifically, what day are you are you starting in in at the University of Cincinnati? Like, or what year rather, not day specifically. Oh, right. Um, Probably a Monday. <laughs> <laughs> it always starts on Tuesday. Actually, I don't know what. Uh, uh, Twenty twenty two. I okay. started. So it's a two year program, which is, it goes by fast. I mean, they, you're already working on your thesis second semester in pretty much. So we had to have our thesis figured out last semester already um, and have it written. So that was like a, a whole 20 page document that describes a show you haven't even done yet. So that was sure. That was hard. Well, and, but at the same time, I think, you know, you'd alluded to this at some point. It sounds like they're, you know, very open in terms of pursuing anything within the visual arts. So it kind of accommodates for the various things that you do, aside from again, just you know, getting interested in painting. Aside from that, you know, you've got music and and writing and you know, and we haven't even scratched the surface on video, video editing. So oh, yeah. that all kind of slowly come together there. Cause I and I realize I'm throwing way too many questions at you. Um, but yeah, we'll just start there before I start asking other things. <laughs> So I think for my portfolio that I applied with, I did have a bunch of video editing projects that I showed. Like they were basically stop motions of me filling out the paint by numbers. And then I would set them to music. Like I would have like a drum beat being visually displayed through repetition and, and showing like the bass drum and the snare and just kind of like toggling between that and then having like the higher melodies on the top half of the page with the guitar notes and kind of, you know, and making these like soundscapes, trying to have a conversation with the the painting, the visuals, and then my music aspects, which to some degree they were, I think they were pretty fun and playful, but I kind of hit a dead end on that because it's kind of like, cool, now you can, you know, there, there are a lot of work too, actually, because you got to, you know, you, you're doing frame by frame stop motion, which it's just, it's just a lot to, you know, snap, paint, snap, paint. Like it, it's a very slow mm -hmm. and arduous endeavor. Just taking a quick coffee break to remind listeners, there's a massive archive on studiobreak.com. Again, 14 seasons of episodes to listen to in the studio, all sorts of artists. So head on over there and check it out. Please do a solid and subscribe to that newsletter. We provide updates about upcoming shows like our recent paintings exhibition with Bill Conger and Ron Jackson that opens March 23rd at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago. And of course, there's other opportunities for students, professional artists to appear on the podcast or to exhibit their work. So please check it out there. And now let's get right back to the show. You know, normally, again, and I, I've said this hundreds of times now in this podcast, but I would imagine for your case, I can't imagine that you didn't get hosed immediately. Like, you can't do this paint by number anymore. I want to want to see the real Andy in there or something like that. Were people kind of really aggressive in terms of <laughs> having you change things up? Or was that something that you were just kind of excited to dive into because you'd never really been in this setting before, I guess, you know? Man, it was it was weird because... So I posted like five of my paint by numbers on Instagram during the pandemic. And I get a message from Jacqueline Cedar 
who's the director of the Naked Gallery in Brooklyn, New York. And she says, hey, these are awesome. Can we have a studio visit? And I was, I didn't even know what a studio visit was. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> she, she wanted to talk about my work. And I was like, okay. And I hadn't even used Zoom yet. So I was like figuring out Zoom. And I was just like holding up paintings while talking to her. And uh, she was great. She was very like just encouraging. And she she said, well, you know, let's um, let's share your work. She wanted to, to help me out. And so she posted uh, one of my paintings on her, her her gallery page and it sold in like five minutes. I just, I got like immediate response and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is easy. You know, I'm going <laughs> to make a career out of this. Like, if, because then it happened again, like that same, that same week I got another sale and it just like, it was on fire for like a few months there. And I was like, man, I really gotta, gotta get into this. Uh, but anyway, so I've had I had a few shows with her already. We went to um, Rockaway Beach and had a huge show with collaborating with Beverly's and Walter Elwood Gallery. And there was like this really fun like collaboration between all these galleries that are kind of in the same sort of aesthetic and mindset. So they all had a great reception to the to the work. At least I thought like people seemed to welcome me pretty pretty easily. But then I. What I didn't realize was that's a very different situation than being in an art crit in grad school where they're, they really are, they can be quite um, honest and ruthless. And and so I, I think our first group crit, Mark Harris is the, the, was the MFA director. He's like kind of a legendary British guy. I mean, he, I think he likes my work, but it was just one of those things where I had paper just like taped to the wall with drawings that are, you know, they're kind of like automatic or um, intuitive characters and, you know, figures in these weird dreamscape landscape with eyeballs and, you know, these repeated vanishing points of buildings and sort of just playful imagery that collaging images in my, my head together. And he was just kind of like, this looks, uh, you know, a little underwhelming, to say the least. And and everyone just sort of had something to say, you know, it was like, uh, we want to see these bigger. We want to see this on better material. We want to see these with, you know, better, I don't know, better paint. You know, every aspect of it was like grilled. And I was kind of, it was definitely like a, a ego check, you know, I was like, okay, well, like I, I do got to pay more attention to what I'm, what I'm using and, and be more, you know, intentional on, on how I'm coming across and how I, I don't mind shows that I go to and see paper taped on the wall, just very simply with no frame, but not everybody uh, in the art world uh, agrees on that, you know? So you gotta, you gotta learn how to play to your audience, I suppose. So like, is there like a shift in terms of, you know, the way that you're kind of bringing these together? Like there's figurative elements that start coming into play, but did that, did that kind of help you, you know, translate I guess the things that you're interested in into your paintings a little bit more and, and to kind of figure out that side of things, there's this uh, one with a staircase that has like a red background, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Seems totally different, obviously, than one of those paint by numbers, right? Which has all the right. texture, all the drawing elements. So I'm just trying to figure out what the difference is in terms of how you're getting to those. Those seem more like your experiences as opposed to you're transforming a, somebody else's painting or reinterpreting it yeah. or but what i mean tell me a little bit about what's going on 
in that regards. Having a solo show really helps get your ideas cemented and like really understand what you're trying to communicate. So I had two lines of work basically up until that. It was like a mid first semester of the MFA program. I had a, a whole wall of paint by numbers on, on the one side. And then on the other side, I had these drawings, which I called draw by zeros. And so I had a soundscape in the middle of the room that kind of bridged the two series. Yeah. So there was the world of my just kind of free flowing thoughts and imagined landscapes. And then on the other side is like these very quiche templates that I bought from the store that I had really no say in what the imagery was, you know, I just kind of picked them out at random and they're usually images of houses or these sort of, you know, comforting, you know, images of pets, or I was just really interested in the types of things that people wanted to paint by number, you know, it was just kind of like, wow, this is a, what a choice here, you know, very Kincaid inspired a lot of the country homes and, and very middle-class. And so I was kind of tapping into that. And then I think in December of the, that first semester, I started painting these like pixelated characters that I called them like block people. They're essentially these post-human sort of android-like assemblages of hu like human human body parts or graphics kind of glitching and they were in conversation with um, the music that I was writing at the time out this pop album called uh, 12 hours. And I was staring at a screen all day composing this music, which is, it looks like that. It's just, if you've ever seen MIDI synthesizers on a screen, when you're um, editing it, you just see these blocks stacked on top of each other of different, you know, lengths and combinations. So it, it made a lot of sense to me that Sometimes they look like figures on on the program you're working with. You start seeing things in your in your own music visually. And so that was kind of where I started seeing like staircases and these sort of stick figure like people in the music itself. And that was really exciting. And and so I was trying to find a way to to convey that. And so this one you, you can look at is the album cover of 12 Hours, where it's it's a red painting with uh, this blocky human ascending a staircase that's yeah that's sort of where that came from yeah well again it's just interesting to see you know that you've got then both sides of these things kind of going and i love the idea of having you know two walls that are kind of you know doing some different things but you know the the commonality with that color obviously is still there but then you know maybe you're kind of again pulling from those those resources like you're you're talking about but also it's got to be pretty intimidating also to to think that you've got to pull this all together starting your you know your first semester is, is starting to kind of think about it so you know because i want to definitely talk a little bit about that that show that is coming up once again your thesis show is coming up uh, in in february on the 23rd so tell us a little about that and i'm sure we'll be able to break down some other things obviously i'm assuming there's going to be a performative aspect of it maybe some projection music and and whatnot but the thesis show is very related to that what i just described the the album and and the block people series um essentially i took the 12 hour album which is really it was only 30 minutes it was a, a standard pop album with 12 tracks and each track represented a personification of an hour of time 
So it was sort of like an embodiment of time being spent in this sort of, I was imagining like an amoeba like space with like organelles and, and very like organic structures, but also kind of like factories or houses, like blocks being these organelles in this kind of amoeba like space. And so I started doing these paintings where I would have a soundscape of each track of the album but I would slow down the tracks to to be an hour long. And so they're very like demented and the symbols of the drums were would crash a certain way and the bass would sound like a whole section of contrabasses and it sounded like there were orchestral instruments in there. It was just really fun to sort of see how the music changed when you change the, the time of it. You stretch, you know, you stretch uh, something for a very significant amount of time. It changes the key all the tonal characteristics of it. And so I took 12 panels and had them all laid out on the floor and started kind of color coding them. So I, I kind of created a, a color palette for the background to make it sort of, um, you know, look like an album cover. Cause I, you know, I noticed a lot of album covers have like a, a bold background color or something. So I would have, I think red for the first hour blue for the second, yellow for the third, and, and so on. And so, yeah, I'd be sitting there for just playing the hour-long thing. And as I was going, I would have my Ableton music software up and would be sort of looking at the all the MIDI elements, all the, the wavelengths, because it's hit, at that point you could see the converted wave file and I had all my effects in there. So I was like drawing out how much reverb I was using, how much echo, how much... Um, distortion, you know, where is where are the levels peaking? Um, just sort of giving that God's eye view of of the music, sort of as a producer, and writing down, you know, if I had a compression set a certain way. So the whole panel was just filled with like basically production notes, mm. and then I just started doing my old self thing of just sort of making a cityscape or uh, and trying to populate it with some some fun uh, figures. Well, it's, it's really cool to think about, you know, taking those elements, you know, I say that because, you know, like I was alluding to earlier, I mean, if you're working in a, in a different way, maybe more observational, traditional, you're looking at something and you're interpreting it. So you're essentially, again, looking at <laughs> this performance and kind of reinterpreting it and, you know, bring in those elements. But it's interesting to me too, because like, obviously as a musician, I would I would imagine like that improvisational side is something that very much carries over to the painting side, you know, where you might start kind of adding adding to things. So in some ways, I feel like they're very related. You know, how has it evolved in terms of like the types of things that you're drawing or painting? I guess um, you know we've talked about the figure utilizing those color codes, you know, observations that you might make from that tracking. But if you feel like you've kind of evolved in terms of the way that you, um, in terms of like, you know, layering paintings, choosing colors, has any of that kind of changed along with, you know, just this process? I would say that the imagery itself has become more and more like playing with symbology and trying to tell some sort of story on a metaphysical level because I, I've been studying um, opera for a few years now. My my master's in English thesis was on art operas and literature and the imagined sounds that we, we invent in our head when we read a piece of writing. Um, when you read the word like 
bang or slam or boom, you you create a sort of like mind bubble sound clip that you, you know, and you create your own soundscape for each novel you read or, you know, anything like that's um, involving cinematic elements. You have to create the world. I've really been trying to go down that path of imagined soundscapes, trying to project that onto 2D surface. So my work has remained pretty flat and that partly is because I never really got good at rendering and, you know, drawing realistically. Like I've tried and uh, over and over again and to varying degrees of success. But I, so I, I've stayed sort of with that 2D flat basic telling what it is really quickly, which I kind of like, you know, you draw a simple sun or star or moon with a house and, and a, you know, like a robotic dog. It's like it very quickly you know, in the mind tells you where you're at and, and what's going on. And so, uh, you know, the stories tend to be pretty nonsensical or dream logic, which, you know, that's obviously like Dali's thing. But so the 12 hours thing was um, based off of a chat book of poetry that I had written for a crit, actually. It was for, I think, my first year review. Um, I handed out this, you know, pamphlet of poems and I don't know if people really, I didn't pass that first year review, let's just say, but <laughs> um, I tried each double page, you know, like when you open the book, each would represent an hour of time, just like the the song. So you would, you'd go through like a poem and a, and an image of a drawing and you'd flip through it. It was called 24 hours in the life of an opera player or something. And you would follow a gigging musician as on their drive to play this opera. So like they would be eating Taco Bell in a parking lot before the rehearsal. And then, you know, just kind of that sort of realist aspect of like before the magic of the stage hits them, you know, and, and then they go home after the, the epic show and they go to sleep. And the concept of this album is the, the opera musician goes to sleep after their show and they're dreaming of the opera they just played, but everything is turned into MIDI orchestra. So all their, their instrumentation has become digitized and it's it's sort of a nightmare in a way. And I think the more I, I dwell on it is sort of a reflection of my time spent in digital land, you know, on, on my computer. I mean, I've probably, you know, I log in eight hours of my day or more, um, you know, just whether it's writing, like everything I do is um, in front of a computer besides painting. And I think that has something to do with that, like sort of nightmare yell of like, ah, I don't have a voice while I'm sleeping. It's turned into this like digital, less detailed version of the thing I was, I just did so well. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, and again, obviously You've got alluded to, I think it's something like a dozen works in this that, that's coming up. Yeah. Are you then like performing this also? I would love to do, I would love to do a live version of this with my, my drummer friend, Tony. But I think for this show, it's going to be a sound cone. I think we're going to have three sound cones so that when you stand in front of paintings are going to be in like a line and I have a, the soundscapes panned left center right left center right left center right so it's going to be kind of chaotic but i like this idea of the sound cone you only hear it in that 
space you stand under it. I've mm -hmm. seen this done in several museums and I thought it was kind of cool. So we're going to test that out with the curators at the CAC and, and see how it sounds. You know, we might play with it uh, in the actual install day, but that's, that's the idea. It's going to be a pre-recorded, but I think it'll, it'll definitely add to the, the viewing experience of these paintings. Are you then kind of then very singularly focused on this and then going to see again, almost like taking data, you know, from this experience to kind of think about how this could be, you know, reformat. I'm sure you're going to be trying to to show this in a number of other spaces and other other formats coming up. But is that kind of like the goal, or? Yeah, I mean, as a musician, as you know, it's you're kind of always thinking about like the next album or the next you know concert. So I I would love to do a live performance, like full band playing all the instruments, just sort of a celebration of like you know, waking up from the digital dream in a way and really bringing it to life would be amazing. Yeah, maybe a video projection. I did have a, a version of that that I played at the this CCM. Uh, really, one of the best things about being in this MFA program, actually, I, I didn't even know this, but the music college here in Cincinnati is is legendary. I mean, it's they're incredible. Um, John Cage actually taught here for a year and like, 69 i believe or mm -hmm. something in the late 60s which was cool to know but anyway like so i've i've been studying under these like composition teachers and piano teachers and you know they've kind of been encouraging me to be like go search out musicians go you know go find people to play with and and bring your pieces to life it'll sound you know so different than what you've been used to you know cuz you're you're kind of i mean you are limited when you only have your mind and some synthesizers, you know, you can only mm -hmm. express so much. So I want it to be more like an organic thing. So some, someday we'll see. I'm just trying to get to this, this show so far. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, remind us when the show is, where it is. Uh, I think there's an artist talk and, and of course all the, the best places to stay in touch. Yeah. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about some of the details. February 23rd, five to eight is the opening at this Contemporary Art Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and it's the MFA thesis show of DAP, um, University of Cincinnati, and uh, Miami University. So it's kind of a duo uh, program event. And it's going to be, I think they have like entire fourth and fifth floors reserved for us. So it's um, just going to be a massive space of, if you've ever been to this uh, museum, it's in downtown Cincinnati, it's kind of the big one. So it's really exciting to have this opportunity with the program. And um, yeah, there's going to be um, a music element there, like I said. And so February 23rd to March 16th. And the artist talk is going to be March 2nd. So if you're around Cincinnati that weekend, uh, I believe it's like an afternoon thing. So probably like 11 to 4, something like that. I have to check the, the times. But it's a, uh, everyone's going to give a talk. So it's going to be quick, like 15 minute sessions. So, um, which is cool. You know, you get a pretty direct dive into each person's work, which can be, can be nice um, instead of the like half hour, hour long talk, which, you know, that's it's sure. just a lot different to, to prepare for. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. Awesome. And then just remind everybody the, the best place to follow along. And yeah. Uh, Instagram, uh, Andy Demzik. Uh, my website is just andydemzik.com and uh, there you'll find 
uh, all kinds of projects that some of them are just totally wild experiments of gifts and some of them are my music pages so um you can find everything there yeah yeah there's tons to check out so i think that's something that's super cool you've kind of done a great job of archiving so many different ways of working different types of projects so you can see all of the things that we've been talking about lots of poetry as well so yeah i hope people go and check it out and you know again i'm always excited to kind of have these you know opportunities uh you know obviously like school studying uh being around artists has always been something that i've been into so you know i'm thankful that uh mia was able to to you know pick your work out and got really interested in it and to have you come and, and, and be part of the podcast. So again, thanks so much for, for doing this, Andy. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks once again, Andy, for joining me. Please check out his website, andydemzik.com. You can find him on Instagram at andydemzik. So please follow him there. You can also find Andy on Bandcamp and listen to some music there. We're currently listening to six from his 12 hours LP. A reminder once again to check out his MFA thesis from the University of Cincinnati DARP that's going to be at the Contemporary Arts Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, opening February 23rd from 5 to 8 p.m. The show runs through March 16th, and there'll be artist talks March 2nd from 12 to 4 p.m. by a bunch of different artists. It sounds super exciting, so please check it out if you're in the Cincinnati area. Other shows to put on the calendar, Recent Paintings by Bill Conger and Ron Jackson that will be opening at Studio Break Gallery March 23rd from 5 to 8 p.m. So please come on out for our first exhibition of the year. And as we noted again, there's lots of podcasts available on studiobreak.com. Lots of artists featured there. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple. It's a great way to stay up to date and have something to listen to while you're working away in the studio. Keep your brain churning about art and process. And if you haven't heard the recent 300 episode with Bill Conger, please go check it out. He's been a frequent guest and collaborator with Studio Break, has so many great thoughts, and again, excited to have him back. So check out that episode if you missed it. If you're a fan of indie music and you want some for the studio, check out Typical Stara Records on Instagram. Give them a follow. And of course, you can find Typical Stara Records on Bandcamp. It's a newer label out of central Illinois run by Brett Beery. There's limited edition cassettes and digital albums that you can buy from Brett, from Decals, from Art Denver, and of course, Golden Shadow, which features myself, Ben Cohan, Brett Beery. So if you're looking for new music, please head on over there and check it out. If you want to follow along on social media, be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter X at Studio Break. And of course, be sure to say hello on Instagram. It's the best place to reach out at Studio underscore Break. It's always great hearing from listeners, especially if they enjoyed an episode like today's with Andy or previous episodes. And as always, I just hope you're being really productive in the studio, making great work, excited about new things coming up with the spring Hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. We'll talk to you real soon.